This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. The victim will often become quite dependent uh, on the perpetrator. Uh, They're in fear for their lives. She felt connected to him in some way. It doesn't necessarily mean she felt safe with him or trusted him in any way. But at this point, he's the only adult kind of looking after her. He appeared to have achieved substantial psychological control over this child. According to surveillance footage from a gas station in Kellogg, Idaho, it's 8.21 p.m. on July 1st, 2005, as a red Jeep pulls into the lot. A man wearing a green ball cap, red t-shirt, and baggy jeans gets out of the driver's side to pump gas. Owner Ted Bemis couldn't believe what his surveillance cameras caught. See, he sees a police car now. He's hiding. A police car drives past, and the man briefly ducks behind the gas pump, out of view until the car is gone. Then a little girl hops down out of the passenger side of the Jeep, and the two walk into the convenience store together. That's definitely him right there and her. The girl's arms are crossed, and she appears to be trying to make eye contact with strangers. Wandering down an aisle alone, she squeezes past three adults. Why didn't she bump one of them on the leg, say, help me, or... Of course, you don't know what he's threatened her with or whatever. As the little girl wanders around the store, the man doesn't seem concerned. He pours a coffee and stops to scan a local newspaper. And somehow, nobody recognizes her. No one realizes that something is wrong that this is the same girl who's been all over the news for weeks. Charlotte adds it, ran up four drinks and over $19 in gas, not realizing who the little girl was right in front of her. They didn't seem like any other, you know, they didn't seem different than any other customers that I'd had. They seemed normal. Eight minutes after pulling up, they head back out to the Jeep and drive away. She's just jumping in just like, nothing's the matter. Monday, May 16th, 2005, about six and a half weeks before that surveillance footage. Dispatchers received a 911 call from just outside the city of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I need to talk to an officer because I think there's a smell of rat here. The caller had stopped by his neighbor's house that afternoon to pay their 13-year-old son for mowing his lawn. But when he knocked, nobody answered. And there was blood smeared on the door. As he told the dispatchers, he smelled a rat. He saw evidence that something wasn't right. I mean, because that it was quite a, it was a bloody crime scene. There was blood everywhere. This is Brett Albury, a photojournalist who covered this story for Creme 2 News in Spokane, Washington, just across the Washington-Idaho border from Coeur d'Alene. And so he made that 911 call and said, yeah, you know, something doesn't look right here. Um, and it, that's pretty much all it was. And then they, they got out there that awful night and, you know, found, found what they found. Inside the home, Kootenai County Sheriff's deputies discovered three bodies. 40-year-old Brenda Groney, her 13-year-old son Slade Groney, and her 37-year-old boyfriend, Mark McKenzie. Following his investigation of the murder scene, Kootenai County Coroner Dr. Robert West said all three victims were killed quickly. We haven't really determined which kind of instrument we are certain to have degree that we need to be is is 
the uh, murder weapon or weapons. West has been the Kootenai County coroner since 1984 and says he can usually spot what led to a violent crime, but not this time, at least not yet. No scenario, to my mind, has been ruled out, and no scenario has become the scenario. Although there was no murder weapon left at the scene, all three victims had been bludgeoned to death and were found bound with zip ties and duct tape, resting in pools of their own blood. They're obviously homicide victims. We know that. Uh, you know, they, they didn't die of natural causes or carbon monoxide or something like that. It's, it's obviously a traumatic incident, and, and they were treating this strictly as a homicide. This was a homicide case, but it wasn't just a homicide case. There were three bodies found in the home, but investigators soon learned five people had been living there. Whoever had been inside that house had taken Brenda Groney's two youngest kids, eight-year-old Shasta and her nine-year-old brother, Dylan. He beat the three to death that he tied up, and then he took the younger two kids and disappeared. So when they got to the crime scene, they had a very horrible, uh, grisly discovery of three bodies in a house and two missing kids. And then it just kind of took off from there. But that, that initial crime scene was just was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. As investigators continued combing through the crime scene in search of evidence pointing to a possible suspect, they also launched a search effort for Shasta and Dylan Groney, and a nationwide Amber Alert was issued. We really have two goals here. First is to find those children and ensure their welfare. And second is to process the scene. So we've split our investigative force to, to do exactly that. Family, friends, neighbors, and other residents of Coeur d'Alene joined in the search efforts for these two children, stolen from their community in the middle of the night. Friends and family of Dylan and Shasta Groney hit the streets of Coeur d'Alene this afternoon. It's just to keep the focus on finding the children. They handed out buttons, flyers, and ribbons in an effort to keep the children's faces in the public eye. We're still searching. We're still hoping that they're going to come home safe. They were not found at the house where their mother, brother, and mother's fiancé were discovered bound and beaten to death. The search of the house is over. Detectives tell Creme 2 News the scene will be guarded for another week. Investigators are already getting leads from evidence from the house sent back yesterday to an FBI lab in Virginia. It's such a high priority that they opened it up on a Sunday afternoon and started processing literally all night long. Investigators are hoping science will lead them to a suspect. We sent back everything from hairs and fibers to fingerprints and blood samples. So we hope to identify people that were in the house through the fingerprints and the DNA. Forensic scientists and family members are working overtime to find the missing children and catch a killer. They continue to search the area because it's kind of a, it's, you're, you know, you're just on the east side of Coeur d'Alene, on the Montana side of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And it, they live in, their house was kind of isolated. It was right down the road from a campground, but the area around the house is, is very marshy. It's wet. Um, there's a lot of water in the area. You're not far from Lake Coeur d'Alene. So they actually, they did a lot, a lot of searching, maybe thinking that, okay, we've got three dead bodies. Maybe we're going to find two more with these kids. The kid's father, who was separated from their mother and did not live in the Coeur d'Alene house where the murders took place, pleaded with the public for help. Please, please release my children safely. They had nothing to do with any of this. The disappearance of Shasta and Dylan Groney has spurred a nationwide Amber Alert, but this distraught father is hoping his soft voice and few words will bring his children home. Release them in a safe area where the law enforcement can find them. Call the helpline, let them know where they can be found. Please, we need the safe return of those children. Soon, the case garnered national attention, 
even being featured on a couple episodes of America's Most Wanted. With such a big spotlight on the search, investigators had no shortage of leads to follow. Investigators set up a call center and thousands of tips came in. One tip led police to a pawn shop in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, but it turned out to be false. Investigators also looked into a family get-together that had taken place shortly before the murders, presumably figuring it was likely whoever took Shasta and Dylan was close to them. There had been some kind of a family party, and there were family and friends there, and so when they found out about that, they spent all this time trying to find people that were at the party. It's like, all right, well, was it somebody that was just here? Was it a friend? Was it a family member, someone, someone? And they started running down all these people and following up leads and trying to figure out who was there. And the the one they identified, a guy named Robert Lutner as a person of interest, and he turned himself in right away and turned out to be nothing. But the, um, the Kootenai County Sheriff's Department, they just, they got flooded with tips. None, however, seemed to be leading investigators any closer to Dylan and Shasta. The children vanished eight days ago. But as days passed, and the case faded from the national spotlight. Search efforts continued. You know, there were, there were people that were, that were going door to door, that were handing out flyers. Their pictures were everywhere. And by that, I mean Shasta and Dylan Groney. No, nobody knew who had these kids. Nobody knew if these kids were dead or alive, but there was always that hope. You know, in, in, in the Kootenai County uh, Sheriff's Office, they stressed this a lot to their credits. Like, you know, they said, you know, we don't have any evidence that these kids have died, none whatsoever. They, they, uh, some of the blood work had gone the FBI route in Quantico, and I remember them talking about when blood evidence started coming back, there was no blood match to what the kid's blood type was. And there was blood everywhere. I mean, it was an awful, awful scene, but none of it matched to the kids. So they were really holding out hope that they were alive. So the community stepped up, and especially in the Coeur d'Alene area, those kids' pictures were on every, I mean, every dang fence and telephone pole and billboard. They were everywhere. On May 26th, 10 days after the kids disappeared, authorities began searching the county landfill for any clues. This is where 30 FBI agents in hazmat suits will spend the next five to 10 days looking for any piece of evidence that could break this triple murder case. A half an acre is a huge area to search, to know what's been searched, what's not been searched. After a safety briefing, agents built a grid to section off who would search where. I'll start picking through that trash, literally piece by piece. Now they've got some heavy equipment for, for larger items to move that, but most of it's going to be hand work. But because of wind and other variables, anything that catches their eye will be tested off-site. When they find things that they think is an evidentiary value, they'll package it and it'll get shipped to the lab for any processing. Investigators carefully sifted through hundreds of tons of trash, hoping to find anything that the perpetrator may have thrown out. Some clue as to who wanted to harm this family and why. But they didn't find anything to point them in the direction of a motive or a suspect. As May turned to June and weeks slipped by, investigators seemed to have hit a wall. We started... uh going to the Kootenai County Fairgrounds in Coeur d'Alene, and they were pretty much doing updates every morning, but there was no more active searching. They followed, They were following up on tips, not coming up with anything, ruling a lot of things out. Even if it was starting to seem unlikely, investigators were holding out hope that the kids might still be alive. Those kids are going to need to eat. Uh, those kids are going to need to go to the bathroom somewhere. You know, they're gonna, somebody's going to see those kids somewhere. Early in the morning of July 2nd, 
nearly seven weeks after Shasta and Dylan went missing, 911 dispatchers received a call from the manager of a Denny's restaurant in Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, hi, friends. This is Linda, the manager at Denny's. Yeah, I've got a little girl here with a tall gentleman, and she looks so much like this. Uh, Shasta. Okay. Are they still in the building? Yeah, they're at uh, table 20. Table 20? Uh-huh. Okay. It's all the way in the back of the restaurant. All right. You know, and, and we're not sure, you know. I just... Sorry. It's, I just... She looks so much like her, and I just... I don't know. All right. We'll have someone start that way. Earlier that shift, an employee at the restaurant had recognized the little girl from the news. That, that girl is sitting over in that booth right there. He grabbed the Nicholsworth paper to prove to Denny's employees that the missing eight-year-old girl had just walked into their restaurant. We're outside and they come walking right up and I was like, dude, that's her. That's totally her. He was right. The little girl sitting in a booth at that Denny's was Shasta Groney. There wasn't a trail to follow. They were ruling out so much and then all of a sudden, bam, there we were on, on July 3rd and I was... I was. I still remember. I was sitting at my table eating a bowl of cereal. It was mid morning, and phone rings, and our assignment editor at the time, Annie, calls me, and she's just like gasping for breath. Oh, I can't believe it. They they found Shasta, and she's alive, and they found her at a Denny's in Coeur d'Alene. But oh, we need everyone to come in right away. And it was just, it was the craziest thing to walk in there and see a smile on her face and hear her joke and laugh around with you is just. It's just great. After seven long, painful weeks, Shasta's family members were finally reunited with the eight-year-old. You've got three people that we've been grieving for seven weeks now. Then we find Shasta, and that has been the biggest blessing to at least have one of them found alive. It's so emotional because you're, you're crying one moment and you're completely devastated, and then you've got to pull yourself together. You've got to be strong and put a smile on your face and go in and see Shasta because you don't want her to see you being an emotional wreck either. Uh, and then by the time you're walking out of there, you're just full with so much joy and you just feel so blessed to have her. It's just constantly just up and down right now. Along with the excitement and relief of Shasta being found alive came the sober realization that Dylan wasn't with her. Shasta's older brother Dylan remains missing tonight and investigators believe he's dead although they will not say where that information came from. Our initial information is that uh, he may be deceased, but uh, until we can get that con confirmed, uh, absolutely, uh, you know, we're gonna still out there looking for him. Obviously, we're looking for Dylan. You know, that's the first and, uh, first and foremost. We've said right from the beginning, the primary thing we're gonna do here is find the missing children, and then secondary, try to solve this homicide. Not that much time went by before they discovered what ultimately were the remains of Dylan Groney. During the search of one of the possible locations in western Montana, investigators have located what they believe to be human remains. The remains are being collected and sent to the FBI lab in Quantico for DNA analysis to confirm the identity. The remains found in western Montana were positively identified as Dylan Groney. The nine-year-old had been shot in the head at point-blank range. His body burned in a campfire. We were given a video of the uh, campsite where they found Dylan's remains and just even just seeing that just an empty campsite with a burned out campfire and just then knowing what happened there is, is, is a horrible thing. You know, you're, again, you're not looking at a gruesome scene per se, but knowing what happened there is, is just as bad. 
The information that led investigators to this campsite in Montana came from Shasta Groney, who was also telling them about the man who'd abducted her and her brother. He'd been identified as 42-year-old Joseph Duncan III, a registered sex offender whose last known address was in North Dakota, around 1,000 miles away from Coeur d'Alene. Someone who hadn't been on law enforcement's radar until he was taken into custody at that Denny's. The cops showed up and arrested him without incident. It was, it was the craziest thing. And then it was then then it it was became, oh my gosh, who the heck is this guy? Nobody that was on the radar in, in any way whatsoever. Where did this guy come from? We've never seen this man before. And then to find out that he's from North Dakota, it's like what brought him over here to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho? And what made him choose our family. Court documents say Shasta Groney told investigators she was asleep the night of the murders when her mother woke her up and then took her to the living room where a man forced the family into ligatures. Shasta says she and her brother were carried outside, put in a pickup truck and bound. Court documents say Shasta says it was the same man she was found with, Joseph Duncan. Documents say Duncan then took the children to Montana where he repeatedly abused them. Court documents also say Duncan told Shasta and Dylan he'd been watching their family for two days prior to the night he kidnapped them. He was just passing through and observed the family. You know, you gotta understand, this is a house, and the house isn't there anymore. That's jumping way ahead. The house isn't there anymore, it's gone. But this house really sat by itself off of I-90, and I can, I can still drive my, even without the house there, I can, I can, I drive through there, you know, two or three times a year. I can say, hey, that's exactly where the house was sitting. There's no other house, there's no other houses around it. Again, you've got the campground down the road on one side and, and some other industrial stuff even. I think it might have been Department of Transportation stuff, the other side of the, uh, other end of the block. But it kind of sat there by itself. And he, to my recollection, he was just passing through and saw people out and about and started watching them. And then when he had watched them enough and kind of had a feel for what their schedule, I guess, what they were doing, what was going on, who lived there, moved in on the house and uh, was able to commit, commit the crime in the way he did, which was, you know, get everyone tied up. Um, put, as I, as I recall, he put the, the younger kids in the truck and, and separated the other three out and killed them and then, and then took off. This was not a spontaneous act. He randomly selected those people, but he planned it out. Kootenai County Sheriff Rocky Watson says he does not believe that Duncan acted on a momentary impulse. I think he's a very meticulous person. I think he had his, uh, a very detailed plan on how he was going to do it. Watson says he does not know how Duncan picked the Grony home, but he believes he killed three people to get Shasta and Dylan. You believe that he did this to abduct the children? I believe he did. That conclusion was no doubt informed by Duncan's criminal record which was extensive. It went back to like the late 70s when he was a teenager. He had his first, uh, I guess, recorded sex crime. And he um, he raped a nine-year-old boy at gunpoint. Gosh, he, he, there, were, there were a lot of arrests. He got, I mean, stealing cars. He got sent, he got sent to a boy's ranch in Tacoma. He told, a th- when he was at the boy's ranch, he told a therapist that he had done a lot of other horrible things and committed a lot of other sexual assaults. And this is all before he was even 16 years old. Um, and then uh, in just probably right about 1980, 
You know, he was out and he stole a bunch of guns from a neighbor, abducted a boy and raped him at gunpoint um, in Tacoma. And he got he got 20 years for that, but he ended up getting out in uh, in 1994. And then um, out on parole, he was kind of it sounds like he just continued to to commit a lot of crimes, probably a lot of, you know, a lot of crimes that were were never uh, were discovered. In the spring of 2005, when he kidnapped Dylan and Shasta Groney, Duncan had been on the run for molestation charges in Minnesota. I'm certain in my mind we got the right, right man in jail, and I think the, um, the children in our community are, are safer. After his arrest at the Denny's in Coeur d'Alene, Joseph Duncan was charged with multiple counts of kidnapping and eventually multiple counts of first-degree murder. The trial was supposed to be set for January of that following year. It got pushed back a couple times, and it ultimately ended up, got pushed back all the way to October of 2006. So you're talking, what, 15 months or so after after, um, he was arrested. And they did, they had started jury selection, and then they ended up reaching a plea deal like right after jury selection had started, and he pled guilty to three counts of murder and three counts of kidnapping. And they gave him life sentences for the kidnapping, but they ended up delaying the sentencing on the murder counts because he was also gonna he was also um, going to federal trial. Duncan pleaded guilty to the federal charges and received three death sentences. So then they brought him back to Kootenai County, and um, instead of seeking a death sentence, which he already had on the murders in the, at the county level, they, um, they, he got three additional life sentences for the murder. So he had, in the end, he had uh, life sentences on top of life sentences and a, and a death sentence. The Groney case would also lead investigators to tie Duncan to other previously unsolved murders. In 2010, Duncan pleaded guilty to torturing and murdering a 10-year-old boy named Anthony Martinez in California in 1997. At some point, he also confessed to the 1996 killings of two half-sisters in Seattle, 9-year-old Carmen Cubillas and 11-year-old Sammy Joe White. He told the FBI he led the girls into the woods and hit them over the head with a crowbar, calling it his, quote, first sheer unadulterated revenge against society. Despite the confession, He's never faced charges in those deaths. After the arrest in the, the Groney case, it was like, wow, now we can tie him to this and this and this and found out a lot of other, other horrible things about him, unfortunately. Following his convictions in the Groney case, Duncan filed a civil petition challenging his three death sentences. But in March of 2019, a federal court judge denied his petition, and he's currently sitting on federal death row. Hey, True Crime Chronicles listeners, this is Spencer Burdig. I'm here with Reed Redman and Will Johnson. Reed, this is a horrific story with a lot of twists and turns. Now, Reed, I do want to know, Joseph Duncan supposedly had a blog that he was actually updating quite often. Can you tell us more about uh, this blog that he was doing? Yeah, so he was actually updating this blog until just a, a few days before the murders at the Grony House 
And I really don't think most of what uh, this guy had to write is worth getting into, but it does offer a little insight as to what was going on with him before the murders took place, because we don't have a lot of other information about that. Um, He writes about, you know, battling with demons. He says the demons took over. And maybe the most telling entry, he wrote that he just wanted to harm society as much as he possibly could uh, before dying. You know, Reed, the thing that I'm really struck by, there, and there's a lot of it in this story, um, I'm sure people in the Pacific Northwest in those areas have heard about this guy. I feel like in other parts of the country, he is not a name that's as well-known as some other serial killers. But to get back to my point, the thing I'm really struck by is this call to emergency or 911 when someone notices the child in the restaurant, right? And I don't know, made me think of two things mainly. One is that's why I always pay attention to when there's a, an alert for someone and, and just look at the picture for at least five seconds because you just never know. I mean, here's someone, this was probably a pretty big case and there's a young you know, kids missing and this person had taken the time to look at this person or it had been all over the news, but gosh, the luck of seeing this kid in this diner and being able to call 911 if there's one moment of of happiness in this story, that's it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the heartbreaking things about this is that that wasn't the first time he had brought Shasta or Shasta and Dylan to a public place. And so there were other instances um, where he was out with these kids and people realized after the arrest was made and his his photo was publicized that, oh, I've, I've seen them out and about and um, I just didn't realize anything was wrong. Well, and I said... Two things. The other thing that I, I wanted to mention was just being on the other end of that 911 call when you're working at, at a 911 call center or whatever it is, emergency operations, and you get those calls where it's one like that. It's not, you know, some terrible wreck or, or some other crime or murder. You get this call that comes in where it could be a kid that everyone is looking for. You can feel that energy in that phone call. I don't know. That audio just really struck me. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that this was over six weeks after Shasta had been taken, that she was rescued, it just, it adds to to the relief of, of her being rescued. Yeah. I could, I could imagine and picture that the employee at the restaurant telling his other employees, look, that's her, you know, that's gotta be her. Um, just a really, what a moment in the story. And, and when you, just to hammer that point one more time, I mean, it is amazing that Shasta survive this because when you look at Joseph Duncan and you review his history, the more you look at it, the more you realize that it is one of incredible violence and a lot of harm. I mean, from, you know, theft to lots of sexual assault going back to when he was 15 to, you know, holding people at gunpoint. And then he, you know, goes on to, you know, supposedly possibly murder six plus people. And after all of this, the fact that, you know, she is recovered unharmed. And and I had read that he actually had told investigators that he wasn't going to kill her because she had taught him how to love. He had killed her entire family. He kills her brother who was with her. And then he chooses not to actually harm her. I It's a miracle that she wasn't harmed because uh, everything points to him not letting her live. Yeah, yeah. And one of the more confounding things about this whole story is that the Denny's where Shasta was rescued was in Coeur d'Alene, the same place where the murders had taken place. So he had left Coeur d'Alene with the kids, 
gone to a campsite near uh, St. Regis, Montana, which is about 90 miles away. So still in the area, but but a little ways away. And then he'd actually gone back to the city where it happened and took her to this public place. So there are people who think, you know, maybe he wanted to to get caught at that point. Maybe he was just done. Who knows? Yeah, and I, I think also uh, the huge community effort, you know, did save her life, right? I mean, we heard that they were passing out flyers, this Amber Alert, uh, goes out. You know, we see some repeating themes when people are actually caught and justice is found. We see that, you know, the uh, DNA genealogical evidence is starting to really catch people. Um, when police preserve evidence, when investigators preserve evidence correctly, that helps in um, catching people. And then also when the community really comes together and shares photos, shares information, and people are on the lookout, it it actually can save people's lives and and catch uh, criminals that that uh, would otherwise go free. Yeah, and it not only saved Shasta's life, but it it got answers to other families, the other victims that that Joseph Duncan had had in the past prior to these murders. They finally got the answers that they had been seeking for so long about about who'd killed their kids and family members. All right, I want to you know also mention before we let folks go that. Uh, the individual you talked to from Washington State, Brett Albury, is actually a photographer. He's been at the call letters, or K-R-E-M, uh, for 22 years, right? It's, it's great to have a photographer or somebody behind a camera uh, talking to us about a case uh, that, you know, he's obviously covered a lot. All right, so, uh, Spencer, where can people go to uh, talk about this case and others that we cover here on True Crime Chronicles? Yeah, well, well, we have a Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault, which is coming up on 5,000 members. It is a great place to dive into this case and other cases like it uh, with other like-minded true crime fans. And Reed, um, if people like this show, what can they do to help us out? Yeah, we put out new episodes on this feed every single Monday. Uh, so make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this so that you don't miss next Monday's episode. Um, and leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening if you uh you want to give us a hand. All right. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.